Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Oh, should we start this show? Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car in Carvana first. Oh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do is answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. I want to remind you about our friends again at Bioptimizers Magnesium. That's right. I've told you that um, I remember during my training uh, a f- endocrinology fellow hammering the importance of magnesium into my head. It's one of the more studied in- minerals out there. And today, thousands of studies show how beneficial it is. Uh, the only two-time Nobel Prize winner, Linus Pauling, someone whose grandkids I grew up with, recommended daily supplementation of magnesium, and many other physicians do as well. It's often overlooked. Most magnesium supplements fail because they are synthetic and not the full spectrum. When you actually get all seven forms of magnesium, pretty much every function in your body is upgraded. Sleep, things like pain and inflammation, all good Magnesium helps. That's why Magnesium Breakthrough is different. It combines all seven essential forms of magnesium into one supplement. With this one simple action, you can reverse magnesium deficiency in all its forms. And right now, during the entire month of November, the makers of Magnesium Breakthrough, that is our friends at Bioptimizers, are running their Black Friday and Cyber Monday until November 30th. This is the best time of the year for incredible deals. Select products, you can get free shipping up to 40% off, and they're even giving away free bottles of Massozymes, P3OM, something I take every day, and their HCL Breakthrough with select orders. You will not find this deal anywhere else, not even their own official website. It's only through this special link, Bioptimizers, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S, Bioptimizers.com slash Drew. Use the coupon code Dr. Drew, D-R-D-R-E-W. And for the fastest shipping and access to free products until November 30th, go to Bioptimizers.com slash Drew. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, usual you know, recommendations and reminders and check me out at drdrew.com. I want to get right to my guest. It is Dr. James R. Doty. His forthcoming podcast, Into the Magic Shop, his newest book, Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and Secrets of the Heart, available on Amazon or wherever else you get books. You can follow uh, Dr. Doty at his website, jamesrdoty, D-O-T-Y-M-D.com, and Twitter at jamesrdotymd. He is a neurosurgeon at Stanford where he's a uh, clinical professor, director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at the Medical School at Stanford, also a director of uh, the CC, the C-Care. It's uh, collaborating on research projects focused on compassion and altruism using neuroeconomic models to assess altruism. Dr. Doty, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you. It's nice to be with you. How are you today? I am good. I want to get right to these economic models of assessing altruism. But before we do, your story is kind of interesting. Would you review that for people? Uh, sure. Uh, in some ways, what we become as adults is a manifestation of how we started as a child. And uh, I grew up in a very difficult circumstance. Um my parents, uh, we were on public assistance essentially my entire life. My father was an alcoholic, and my mother had had a stroke when I was a child and was paralyzed 
partially uh, and had a seizure disorder, uh, chronically depressed, attempted suicide multiple times. Uh, We were evicted from uh, homes. And as you know, uh, if you look at children from these types of backgrounds or what we call adverse childhood experiences, the likelihood for them to either grow up uh, healthy or be successful uh, is really quite limited. Uh, But what happened to me, and actually that's the title of the book, is at the age of 12, uh, one of the things I would do when I was angry or upset or something was happening at my home, I would get on my bicycle and ride as fast as I could away. And one time I um, arrived at a strip mall, and in the strip mall was a magic shop. And in the magic shop, I walked in, and there was this uh, woman there in her 50s, and uh, I asked questions about magic, and she said her son owned the store, and she knew nothing about magic. But this began a conversation, and one of the reasons I felt really comfortable talking to this woman is she had this really radiant smile that uh, embraced you, and I think all of us have had experiences with people who really just being in their presence, even though we've just met them, uh, gives a sense of psychological safety. And when you have that, that makes you much more open to be authentic. And that's what happened in this case. And after about 20 or 30 minutes speaking to this woman, who really treated me as an equal in our conversations, uh, she said, you know, um, I can help you if you want, and I can teach you some things that I think would really be beneficial to you. And I wish I could say I had this incredible self-awareness, but frankly, I did not. Uh, The reason I showed up again was uh, because she gave me chocolate chip cookies and uh, I had absolutely nothing else to do. And uh, so I did show up. And over that period of time, and you have to remember this was in the late 60s, we didn't talk about mindfulness or meditation or neuroplasticity. But clearly, this woman had been exposed to Eastern religions, and uh, she taught me a form of mindfulness, uh, which would now be called a body survey initially, and how to attend, and breathing exercises, which really shifted you from this fear mode, which I lived in chronically because of my own background. In some ways, it was this chronic, uh, unexpected traumas, to shifting from the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system and truly relaxing my body, which then, if you will, allows you to be present. And after I, and I won't say mastered it, but once I was capable of that, uh, then she made me understand that the negative dialogue that was going on in my head uh, really wasn't real and that I could potentially change that dialogue from being hypercritical to uh, being one of affirming, uh, feeling I was worthy. And, um, and then from there, she made me realize that once I changed my internal dialogue and was comfortable uh, doing that, it made me see the world in a completely different way. And it, in some ways, took away the anger and hostility and hopelessness uh, that I had because I felt I had no agency, if you will. And, uh, and it made me look at people in a different way uh, from being uh, hypercritical of them or being suspicious. And what I tell people is what I learned from this woman in this magic shop uh, changed my perception of the world and how I interacted with the world. And as a result, the world changed how it interacted with me, and it allowed me to change the trajectory of my own life. It's an amazing story. I've got a million 
comments and questions. Um, the the first thing about this woman and her sort of presence reminds me of some research that a guy named Peter Fonagy did. He guy that sort of uh, invented the theory of mentalizing or mentalization. And he went on a quest for a while in the UK to figure out what find the therapist that had the best outcomes who has the best outcomes and then study that person and see what their qualities were and he said it was not his research actually he was quoting somebody else and he said and when the research was concluded they found this old woman in the Cotswolds who'd had modest training she was not a high level professional but she just sat there and was so deeply attuned and empathic that people healed in her presence. And uh, and when you look at the research on, on any psychiatric or psychological technique, one of the dirty little secrets that embedded in all of that research is what really matters is not the technique but the empathic attunement of the, of the person that applies the technique. Well, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, um uh, who was it? I can't think of the person's name, but he said after you know thirty years of research, we understand that the most important thing is kindness. Yeah, right, 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 <laughs> right. And and and, it, and I think another way of saying that is brains change other brains, right? Uh, and, and if for we, good and bad, for good and bad, right. And if we know how to use a brain properly to help other people, you know, to apply that mind, we would be better parents. We would be better teachers. We'd be better doctors. We'd be better social peers, but we seem to apply no emphasis to any of that in our culture. Well, I would say that um, for many people, uh, they live in a, a fear state, and it can be a mild level of fear, and it can be a high level of fear. And of course, when you're in a fear state or you engage, if you will, your sympathetic nervous system, this limits your possibilities and it limits access to your prefrontal cortex or what we call your executive control areas. And you're not as able to be as thoughtful, creative and discerning. And I think in some ways you could make this sort of this um, choice between, if you will, living in uh, with fear or this fear state or uh, a love state. And I, I don't mean that in a, um, uh, sort of cliche sort of way, but I think it's truth. We know that human beings are social animals. We know that without human connection, they cannot thrive. But many, many people uh, have a very, very challenging time with that. Well, you mentioned a, a word I haven't thought about. Uh, I, 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 you know, I work with lots of traumatized people, and and they cannot trust that. That is the, that is the one of the fundamental sort of things I'm always trying to bridge with them. But you used a word I've not thought about, which, as someone who was experiencing this as a child, I, I'm sure this is meaningful to you, and it, it just struck me when you said it. And that was the word suspicious. And and that's interesting to me. I don't I don't think about the person sitting across from me typically feeling suspicious. I feel them feeling closed, walled off, unwilling to trust. Tell tell me a little more about suspicion. Well, I think if you're in an environment where you never know what's going to happen next, uh, and this happens over and over again uh, with different interactions with people, then you're highly suspicious what the other's motives are. And when you're, of course, suspicious of another person's motives, uh, that essentially uh, translates into a lack of trust. Uh, and I think that's what I was talking about. You know, when you can't rely even on your caregivers 
to protect you, you're lost. And I think uh, that's a challenge. Yeah, it's interesting. It's literally your brain trying to make sense of the motivation of your parents. And the fact is what they were doing is they were being an alcoholic. They were being a stroke patient. They they weren't – the motivation wasn't something you could make rational sense of necessarily. Well, I think uh, the problem is, and in some ways um, this is what she taught me, what I realized ultimately was that it wasn't about – my parents not caring about me. I mean, the reality was they cared uh, very much. They were sick. But they were sick. And yeah. they did not have the tools or the resource, resources yeah. uh, to take care of that. And so this is why <clears throat> when we interact with people oftentimes, we think if somebody's angry, hostile, or has some other issue with us, it's about us. And the reality is oftentimes they're – uh, issues going on with them that they haven't processed, dealt with, or have repressed, and they're acting out uh, oftentimes uh, with us. And you hear this statement that's been attributed to Viktor Frankl, but I'm not sure if, in fact, it was. Uh, but this is uh, the response uh, from a stimulus. Stimulus and the pause between your response. And it's said that that's where your freedom lies, and it's understanding then, in fact, that's the case. How do you respond to another person? Are you kind? Are you sympathetic? Are you suspicious? Are you distrustful? So that is the, if I remember correctly, a function of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, right, where you're able to stop and 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 choose a subdominant impulse. I think it's ventral medial, actually. I think about it. It's more of an emotional. It's like the orbital, orbital frontal system. Right. Uh, and... and and that's a high order function, right? I mean, that's something that has to be developed, as does empathy, right? It comes late. We don't naturally have those functions. They have to be developed. And again, looking back on the research of Alan Shore and Peter, all these guys, um, Stephen Porges and Gary, you can shout out the, the pods when we interviewed those guys. Um, this is Stephen's uh, a good friend of mine, actually. Uh, right? So, you so okay, good. Which so is Stephen, Stephen Porges has been on uh, numerous times episode 63, episode 395, episode 90. I'm sorry, was there another name you shouted sure, out? Sure, S C H O R E. So, and, and but I want to I want to use a little Stephen back at you in a second, uh, because I because there's something I want to push on a little bit, Alan Shore, uh, episode 65. It looks like just episodes. Okay. Does, does he have some incredible memory for these? No, he just has a computer in front of him. <laughs> so, yeah, how he how he comes up with the numbers as quickly is kind of a mystery to me. But but um, the point being is that it is through intera- empathic attunement of another person or the presence of a trusted closeness with another brain that our brains develop these capacities for executive functioning, focus, even attention. There's some evidence that attention is a function of somebody else paying proper attention to us and that we attend back with focus, right? Well, uh, in some ways, I mean, you can look at our evolution as a species. And, uh, you know, if you look at uh, why we are caring or why we nurture another, it's because uh, – they gain our attention, we get connected to them, and we're rewarded with the release of oxytocin and other hormones that uh, stimulate our reward and pleasure centers. Right. Uh, and, and so so I want to go back to your – I don't know where I'm going with this, but let me – just again, something that kind of jumped out at me a little bit. So your personal 
story with trauma was one of sympathetic hyperactivation. Uh, right? We were saying no. I, sure. Okay. So I'm characterizing that. But but in in the world today, the trauma is so profound and so chronic that what we typically see is both hypersympath hypersympathetic stimulation with concomitant hyperparasympathetic inhibition simultaneously, and what we get is early onset dissociation, uh, which is a disconnecting from certain systems in the brain, walling off of parts of ourself as a result of that disconnection. And this is all Peter I mean this is all uh, Stephen Porges's stuff, you know, the so called polyvagal theory. But I mean I see this all the time where people are shut down. They're they're not there there is some hyperstimulation in the lurking in the background, but they're dealing with it through shutdown. Does the same intervention, do you think this woman would have worked as well for you if you'd been in a shutdown state or maybe you were in a shutdown state? Um, I think to overcome someone who is shut down, uh, that takes a lot of time and trust. It can't happen in uh, – generally, I don't think in a single interaction. Right, right. Uh, because to overcome that very um, high and thick wall of suspicion – uh, it takes a lot of time of just sitting with somebody and talking to them and then letting them talk and tell their story, which I think is really important uh, for a lot of people. You know, there's this concept of empathic listening. And I think, uh, and in fact, even in my own, uh, strangely, my own practice, which is neurosurgery, I actually, when I started this work, would get requests to just meet with me. And almost invariably it was, and I hate to say this because many of us are damaged, but it was a damaged person and they just wanted to tell their story. And literally all I would do is just, yes, uh, I understand it's not your fault. You were a child, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point it would be like this cathartic experience would occur where they would just burst into tears. And then uh, I would essentially have to hold them for 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, that is very time intensive. And for a neurosurgeon, that's not necessarily <laughs> that's, not, that's not your main job. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, the interesting thing about it was to learn the the really the the immense amount of pain people carry with them and who feel they've never been listened to. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's it, the language you choose is deeply meaningful to me because holding environment is precisely what I think of as what I'm trying to create for somebody. I don't necessarily physically hold them, but I feel like it's an emotion, at least a space of holding of safety, as you said uh, that the woman created for you, for instance. But it's a holding environment. A guy named Bion used to talk about that. B i o n. Um, okay, I've got a sort of a flood of experience of ideas. The 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 well, other thing. What's that? Wilfred Beyond. Beyond. There, thank you, sir. See, he's got a computer for <laughs> I like this. I wish I had this ethereal voice behind me that gave me all the just information. A, just a I peripheral need. brain, especially as you age. <laughs> Trust me, it's very useful. No, so, uh, believe me, I know. So, um, but the the um, where was I going with this? Uh, beyond holding environment. Oh, that the the experience I get to have, and I've brought this up on many of my podcasts, is. Uh, Parts of that person that are not being expressed, if I am listening actively enough with my whole body, I call it, like listening with my being, um, I will have experiences, pain, weird smells, music, all kinds of things will happen to me that are literally from the other person. Uh, and it's usually traumatized 
parts that are sort of communicating sure. itself because it doesn't have any other means to be felt or heard or connected with. And, and the person themselves isn't connected with those parts of themselves, but by bringing it into the holding environment sometimes allows them to bring it back into their their world, so to speak. Have you ever had experiences like that? Oh, sure. Uh, and I think what happens is that um, in some ways you're forcing them uh, to open up and be themselves empathic with the pain that you're feeling from their own Oh, that's interesting. I get it. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and, and I, I think uh, it's an interesting, actually, uh, technique uh, because oftentimes people are very – hypercritical of themselves, yet uh, they're very kind to other people. And in fact, this is a common uh, problem with healthcare workers, right? They've had their own trauma, which they haven't dealt with, and they give everything to everyone else, and then they burn out. And I think in this instance, we're talking about- Been there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they uh, uh, you know, then they look at you suffering, then it sort of brings them back and they're able to then uh, recognize their own suffering. Although I will tell you that when I bring those experiences into the room, <laughs> it's not always met with uh, <laughs> comforting. <laughs> you know, it's sometimes they'll, they'll become enraged and they'll run out of the room. And uh, as long as I can keep them engaged in treatment, that will get worked through. But it's not like it's all niceties when you say, hey, I'm funny thing. I have a pain in my back here. And it's like, I wonder if that has meaning to you. Well, you know, fuck you. That's where my dad used to beat me, and it, and it's and there's a weird kind of thing that happens too, is that when you call it forward, they're they don't go, how did you know that? Because they're in it with you. They just go, well, of course, you know, that's dad, you know, and and you reminded me of it. And blah, blah 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 blah. Here we go. Well, it's interesting because, as you know, uh, events don't have any uh, emotional color, if you will. They're strictly events. When we play something into our memory, we attach the emotion to that event. And then when we recall it, uh, it's not so much about the event. It's about the emotion we attach to the uh, right. event. That's right. And I think this is one of the challenges for people is to understand that there's no necessarily good or bad. It's simply an event. But so many people are uh, punishing themselves, if you will, by carrying this anger and hostility, uh, oftentimes at about an event that they had no control over whatsoever. As you look at the world today, don't you worry that that's a lot of what we're seeing acted out? Well, I think, yes. Uh, and there are a couple aspects. Obviously, if you have an individual who plays to the most base of your uh, emotional uh, feelings uh, and, um, you know, taunts you about it and, and of course, then blames others, uh, I think that can certainly stimulate it and enrage a lot of people. And uh, potentially this can be from uh, the right or the left. I don't want to get too much into politics. Yeah, it's, but, it's going both ways for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think that if a group of people feel like they have been ignored by both groups of uh, political parties, mm -hmm. uh, and they feel that they have nothing to lose, uh, then I think they're much more prone oftentimes uh, to either have an external entity to blame. Uh, and it's not their fault at all in the sense of the position they're in. It is a failure of us uh, to allow a situation where people can thrive 
uh, versus a cre- uh, creating an environment where they fail. And But that anger and hostility can be directed towards the other uh, and be manipulated. And certainly, as we all know, on both sides, uh, there are politicians who use fear and anxiety uh, to manipulate people. I guess it's always been that way. Yeah, yeah. it has. And, and unfortunately... For many people, they don't have the uh, self-awareness or the insight or, in some ways, if you will, the training to understand the nature of how their mind works or or even their own biases. I'm wondering if you have any uh, preferred models of how the brain is uh, affected by trauma. In other words, you know, I have my own theory about Essentially, I, I sort of I think Stephen Porges gets as close to what I think is accurate, and, but even his have some big gaps developmentally. You know, and sort of what, what's really going on here when that dorsal motor complex doesn't. I mean, it, he's got some ideas, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm I have a clear narrative. Do you? Well, I would be presumptuous if I said I did. Uh, I certainly have some thoughts about it. Now, you have to remember, you know. Uh, Three-year-old children have the ability to uh, empathize, and, and, and a number of studies have shown that they show uh, the ability to intervene, to help others, to care. And then after that, at some point, that diminishes. And I don't know if this is the nature of being exposed, if you will, to uh, the real world. Uh, but certainly this uh, innate capacity that we contain within us to care, to nurture, uh, is uh, profoundly affected by the time you get to adulthood. And I think that the traumas that you're alluding to in some way uh, chip at this. Uh, as an example, if you look at my own background, I think people can go in one or two directions. Uh, for myself, uh, I understand what it's like to feel pain. Uh, it's not uh, particularly pleasant. And so for me, when I look at another I am very empathetic to their situation and try as best I can to care for them and to be compassionate. But another person coming from my background uh, can say, look, uh, I did this on my own. It hurt like hell. I have no obligation to anybody else. Screw those people. I'm not going to do anything for them. And this is where the path shifts. And then if you look at people who are more affluent, what happens is the reality is wealthy people often don't need the other. And as a result, their ability to uh, empathize uh, significantly diminishes because for them, another person is simply someone who is doing something for them and those people can be replaced. And I think this is also uh, one of the aspects. And when you get a group of people who diminish the worth of others or don't show their dignity, uh, then it's much easier to objectify them and uh, do what you want. And in some ways, this relates to tribalism. And whether you identify with a race, uh, a culture, uh, the wealthy class, we have a tendency to find safety with groups of people who look like us, act like us, think like us. We have to fight against that. And that's that is a, that is a, some, something from our environment of evolutionary adaptedness, like many things that we have to sort of not let sit in a, a priority motivation position. 
Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. You know I love these guys. If you need an escape, drop into Pluto TV for a world of free television. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. It's magic. You put the app in. You click on it. You will not believe it's the usual menu you're used to seeing on your satellite feed. And it's all there, free, no subscriptions, no fees, 24-7 channels, Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy television shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. You will not believe what you can get from Pluto. And what are you waiting for? Download the free – did I say free? It's all free. That's It's stunning. Free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV. Start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Um, you, you're using the word compassion and empathy interchangeably. I, I kind of feel like compassion. When I, when I, well, I actually, I'm not. I'm okay. using them together. But uh, and I'll, of course, the difference is uh, empathy is taking on the emotional state of another, and you feel what the other feels, but it requires no action. Compassion, and, and you can have empathetic joy, right? Yeah. I mean, you can feel another's positive emotional state. Compassion very distinctly relates to suffering with a motivational desire to alleviate that suffering. I, I want to I drill into that just a little bit because for me, compassion was something I, I have crazy uh, hippocampal function. I, I can remember back to age one. I mean, I, I, I moved when I was two and I have loads of memories about that house. Um, and so I can think back to now how accurate the memory is. Who knows? But, I was yeah, say, <laughs> but I, I'll but, believe you, Drew. <laughs> but well, but I told my parents what was on the wall in my room where I had a crib, and they they oh, their heads almost rolled off their shoulders. I was like, yeah, yeah, wow. I, I can see it right now. Um, uh, and uh, but but uh, let me just say because I experienced this same thing as an adult, which is uh, I, I have boundary problems from my trauma, and so compassion was when I would see somebody else in pain, it would motive, it would trigger my pain. And I wasn't aware of that, but I'd have to stop it in the other person because it was so uncomfortable for me to see somebody else in pain. While as I, through therapy and you know aging and whatnot, I can now put a boundary between self and other, and and feel the other person's pain with and separate from mine without without activating mine and having a deep appreciation of what the other person is feeling. Yeah, and I think you're, you're talking about empathic distress, which, yeah. uh, you know, and clearly there are some people who are more attuned to others' pain and suffering. And I have to say myself, I mean, I, I will get emotional uh, thinking of some of these situations that I've been in or see others experiencing because it reminds me of my own pain. Yeah, And it, it's interesting because I was giving a lecture one time, and sometimes when I give lectures, my voice will crack or I'll shed a tear and what it does, though, for the audience, it gives them permission to cry and to open up themselves and it yeah. really connects you with them. Yeah. But after one of these lectures, a woman comes up to me and she says, you know, I'm a psychiatrist and a hypnotist and you must have felt so embarrassed on the stage. I saw the tear. They were her voice cracked. They were hers. She <laughs> no, thought no, it was no. hers. Huh? <laughs> no, here's what she said. She said, I felt so sorry for you that, you know, if you come and see me for three sessions, I can get rid of that. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, okay, in the remaining minutes, which I've only got like about five or seven, uh, neuroeconomic models to assess altruism. Oh, I've got 10 minutes. Oh, good. Tell me about that. Well, uh, these are mostly studies with college students, but it's to uh, assess uh, how people respond 
giving money, either voluntarily or not, and how it affects their reward centers in the brain. And as it turns out, interestingly enough, I think we can all appreciate uh, if we give money to a cause we're interested in. But what's interesting about this work is that even if you're forced to give money, where it's actually taken from you to give to somebody else, those same pleasure and reward centers are lit up when you feel that money is going to benefit another. And this has been repeated in a uh, whole variety of studies. I'm guessing that's fMRI light up when you say light So are people consciously aware of anything? Uh, Well, again, I think uh, this sense of uh, feeling good about yourself, I think they're consciously aware of that. Uh, uh, Yeah, and I think this is the nature of compassion, if you will. And Dalai Lama says um, this is the only uh, uh, time it's okay to be selfish when you're being of service to another person because you do receive benefit and it has a huge positive effect on your physiology. It's. I've been in fMRI and, and given visual stimuli and things, and I'm stunned how much my brain fired off at stuff that I had zero awareness of. It really is kind of interesting. But I want to. I want to again because I'm pushed for time. I want to go back to the Dalai Lama, who is a friend of yours. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, in fact, he's the founding benefactor of the center that I run at Stanford, and for a number of years, I was the chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. Tell me about that relationship, how it got started, and what we should sure. ta- what we should take away from his teachings. So how about well, that in, of all, in five minutes, by the way? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, first, sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. Uh, first of all, uh, what was fascinating is that I reached out to him when I had begun this work, which was initially called Project Compassion. And uh, as a result, a meeting was arranged with him. And this was a meeting scheduled for about uh, 15 minutes. It ended up going an hour and a half. And uh, he immediately agreed to come to Stanford, give a lecture. But what was fascinating was he began an animated dialogue with his translator, uh, who then shared with me that his holiness was so moved by uh, what I was doing that he wanted to make a donation, which at the time was the largest donation he had ever given to a non-Tibetan cause. Now, people ask, what is it like to uh, spend time with the Dalai Lama? And interestingly, earlier I said, this woman in this magic shop, in some ways, she met me with this radiant, non-judgmental smile that made me feel psychologically safe. And what happens in modern society is people carry projections of how they want people to see them not their authentic self, because they're afraid of being judged. Mm. And really, there's a heavy psychological burden from that. But when you're with a person like the Dalai Lama or some of these other evolved spiritual leaders, Amma the Hugging Saint or Sri Sri Ravi Shankar Sadhguru, you have this feeling that you're embraced by love, that there's no judgment whatsoever. And in some ways, immediately, this takes down these barriers and you have this deep joy within yourself. And again, I'm an atheist. I uh, don't have any um, belief system in terms of something ethereal. But what I do know is how I feel uh, around evolved uh, people like this. And it's a wonderful feeling because, again, you are able to take down this barrier that is, in modern society, the major separator of people uh, getting close and being authentic. And it's only with being authentic 
that you can truly connect with someone. Open and authentic, right? You need an openness also. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Uh, uh, No question. And and you mentioned the the word joy a number of times. And and joy is kind of an interesting word that I don't think we pay enough attention to. It's in all the religious literature. And I, I, funny, I haven't thought about it in a while, but a few years ago I used to think a bit about it because I really believe joy is an interpersonal thing, right? It's something we, we have with others. We have happiness and glee and other things by ourselves, but joy is I, – I think that's a shared experience. Am, am I right? Uh, well, I, I mean, you're probably right in how it works for you or the term you use. I, I think like when I wake up in the morning, I sit by the side of my bed and I think of two terms. I think of joy and awe. Oh, okay. And so I think of the joy of being alive, of the experiences that I have with either nature, with other human beings, and uh, it makes me feel good. It's sort of this unbounded feeling of goodness. And then awe is in some ways this understanding that there's so many things that are beyond my comprehension, but at the same time, uh, I am here, I'm present, and, uh, and in many ways, I have control over how I see the world. And this is what people don't understand. If you have fear, if you have anxiety, it limits your self-agency, uh, but if you're able to calm your mind, if you're able to shift into your parasympathetic nervous system, then you have access to your prefrontal cortex. You have access to be creative. You have access to be thoughtful, but you also have access to this incredible power within yourself to not only change yourself, but to in fact change the world. It's just interesting. And I bet gratitude follows, right? Feelings of gratitude. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it just, it's fascinating to me that, that there's a, a quality to what you're describing that I think I've heard in, in many religious contexts, right? Uh, and it's funny, you did say joy in your experiences with other people, which is mm, my, my point. Um, yes, but, no, I agree. Yeah. But, but it's cool. also joy with the world. Yes. But with the world is with. I guess it would also be of being in the world, right? Is that yes, more about yeah, yeah, okay. Yes, I think that. Yeah, so being in the world. And and awe is something that people have often described awe before God, whatever that is to them, right? And, right. and awesomeness is really that acknowledgement of the things greater than the self. And, and the more you appreciate how big that is and, and the more awe and gratitude you feel. Yeah, and Dacher Keltner, uh, you probably know him. I don't know if he's been on your show, but uh, certainly uh, he's written a lot about this as well. I, I, I'm not aware of him. Tell me, give me two seconds. Uh, he's at the Greater Good Center at UC Berkeley, uh-huh. and he's a compassion researcher, if you will. But he's also Gary. Spent make a lot note of this, <laughs> Gary. Put, 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 put this one down. K e l t n e r. Keltner, uh, and he's a, actually a wonderful human being as well. Interesting. Well, listen, you've been very kind with your time for us. I I, uh, I appreciate it. I heard you, I think, with Sean Carroll on uh, his podcast, and, and I, I get jealous of the interviews that Sean does, and I have to I have to uh, touch and feel and connect on, on my own, and uh, you're definitely one of those people. When I heard your interview with him, I was just, oh, my God, I just would die to, would love to talk with him, and it has not been a disappointment, I assure you. Uh, again, where would you like people to go? Well, you can check out our website at Stanford, which is CCARE, ccare.stanford.edu. If you're interested in my book and a little bit more about me, you can go to uh, jamesrdotymd.com, and that's D-O-T-Y. 
Uh, or uh, you can also go into the magicshop.com, which actually uh, talks about my book, but will soon be the uh, host of the podcast that I'm going to start right oh, after the first of the year. Can't wait. Well, I will be, I will be uh, subscribing to that for sure. And, and just a couple seconds on your neurosurgical uh, practice. You had a fellowship in pediatric neurosurgery. Is that what you do is pediatric neurosurgery? Uh, well, uh, no, actually, at the moment, I'm primarily doing adult neurosurgery, uh, uh, but I've actually had sort of an eclectic career. I was the chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Children's in Orange County for some time mm. and also a pediatric neurosurgeon at Stanford, but then I also have a lot of experience in spine surgery ah. as well as cerebral vascular surgery, so I uh, maybe I just need more stimulation than the average person. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, like what, what's today? Where, I mean, do you have anything scheduled and surgically? Uh, no, actually not today. Uh, over the last uh, week or so, uh, I've taken out some fairly significant brain tumors and mm. have done uh, a bit of uh, complicated spine surgery. That's sort of uh, what I focus on nowadays. Very good. Well, uh, Dr. Doty, I appreciate you spending time with us, and we will look for that new podcast, Into the Magic Job. Thank you so much for spending uh, a few minutes with us. Thank you, Drew, and I hope our paths uh, get to cross again. I would love that, and we'll see you next Thanks. time. Thanks. Take you. care. Bye-bye. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Thank you.